Christ Fellowship at all of our locations. Can we give it up for our worship team at all of our, we appreciate our worship team. Well, hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Van and I'm one of the pastors here. In fact, I serve as a campus pastor at our West Kendall location. So a big shout out to my West Kendall family. Yeah. In fact, I want to welcome all our campuses, all our local campuses across Miami-Dade and our online campus. Christ Fellowship, can we give it up for our campuses? Well, hey, we have been on this journey in studying the book of Mark, and we're in a series called Straight Up, where we look at the teachings of Jesus, where he was most deliberate, where he did not beat around the bushes, and he told us straight up what the kingdom of God was like. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. Mark chapter 10, beginning verse 42, and it reads like this. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so. Everyone say, not be so. Everyone say, not be so. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Well, God bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat at this moment. Well, I want to begin by giving some good news. You guys are up for some good news? Well, here's the good news, all right? Good news is that there's a likelihood that you will not die in an avalanche. That's right. Uh, the, statistically speaking, uh, 28 people annually in the U.S. die from an avalanche. And so your faith, the odds are towards your favor. Now, Add that to the likelihood or the probability that an avalanche happens in Miami and your odds just got astronomically larger. Now, you can breathe a sigh of relief, uh, but I don't want to leave you hanging because in case you are wondering, if you find yourself in an event that you find yourself in an avalanche and you're submerged into snow, I want to give you a tip so that you can survive. I want to give you a tip so that you don't become a statistic. You want to know the tip is how to survive an avalanche? Here's the tip. Spit before you dig. That's right. Spit before you dig. Apparently, when you find yourself in an avalanche and you're just submerged, capsized in snow, you lose a, your sense of direction. You get disoriented. You don't know where up is. You don't know where down is. And the common mistake for people who find themselves in that situation is that they will frantically dig their way out. The problem is, is that you might be going the wrong way. So here's how this tip uh, can help you survive an avalanche. So here's what you do. You find yourself in an avalanche. You're submerged in snow. What you want to do is free one of your hands and uh, dig some snow in front of your face because what you want to do next is that you want to spit because gravity, I mean, spit still exists even if you're submerged in snow, right? So when you spit and your saliva goes in the opposite direction where your mouth came from, what that tells you is, is that you're facing down and you need to orient yourselves up because that's the way to the surface. Now, the same is true with that, right? So if you spit and the spit comes out and then comes back in your face, first of all, that's gross. But now you know where the surface is. So you want to dig in the direction that you are facing. Pretty handy tip if you find yourself, you're welcome, right? Now, this is how, you know, you can survive. You would have thought, right? Spitting could save your life. Now, Popular uh, Science Magazine recorded something. They found a skier who died in an avalanche, 
And the, they were determined that this skier actually dug 30 feet into the snow in the opposite direction. Okay, he, he thought that by heading this direction, he thought that by digging this, in this path in this direction that he would find himself to the surface. Come to find out, he was going the wrong way. Hey, can you imagine yourself in that moment? You find yourself submerged into snow and you're frantically digging. You're clawing your way out, thinking that this is the way for escape. This is the way to the top. This is the way to freedom, only to find out you're going the wrong way. And what you need at that moment is a reality check. Now, let me bring that over to today's teaching because what an image of what could happen and the tragedy that can exist in our lives. Because really, the story serves as a cautionary tale for all of us, doesn't it not? See, like, just like the skier who thought that the way to the top was in this direction, was in this way, only to come to find out that he's going the wrong direction. We too, if we're not careful can think that the way to joy, that the way to success, the way to the good life, the way to freedom and greatness is in this direction, but all in the while we're headed in the opposite and wrong direction. Because the reality is, is that we need a reality check just like this year. And Jesus tells us straight up, you might think you're going to the top, but actually, Ali, you're going the wrong way. And, and what we need to ask ourselves, in fact, the, rea- the reality is that there's really two types of directions you can go in your life. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. There's true greatness and there is false greatness. And what you need to know today, in fact, this is my big idea for you today, is that God wants you to experience true greatness in your life. Now, the obvious question is simply is this, which way is it? How do I know if, despite all my great attempts, that I'm going the right way and not growing the, going the wrong way? What does true greatness look like in the kingdom of God? Well, we're going to find out as we jump back into Mark chapter 10. And so I have three thoughts I want to share with you what true greatness looks like. So if you have your, your, your Christ Fellowship app and if you like taking notes, put this down as point number one. Greatness is a God-given desire. Greatness is a God-given desire. In fact, let's take a look closer to the story. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Which is a strange way to preface a request, isn't it not? It's kind of like when your kids come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I need you to do me a favor, but you have to say yes, right? Or maybe for you, as kids, you came up to your parents and said, Mom, Dad, I have something important I need to tell you. But you promise not to get mad. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You, you want to condition a certain response to leverage your response or the response that you want to get from them. Now, interestingly enough, like what we see here, Jesus actually responds to the request. He says this, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, context is important here because prior to this moment, Jesus has just announced our ministry here is done. We are headed to Jerusalem. The time is now. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise back to life. 
to which what was racing to the disciples' minds was, this is it. This is the moment. Now that Jesus is going to march towards Jerusalem, he's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to be ruler of all. And we want to capitalize in this moment. We want to leverage this moment for ourselves. Now, this is actually a common conversation that you see throughout the Gospels from the disciples. In fact, the multiple accounts in the gospel record this kind of desire for this kind of greatness that they were looking for. In Luke's gospel, they were there at the Passover meal, at the Last Supper, right before Jesus was betrayed, right before Jesus was arrested, and a fight broke out in the dinner table, and the topic was, who among the disciples is the greatest? Now, Mark records this story. Interestingly enough, Matthew records the same similar story, but adds one Minor detail. See, it wasn't just James and John who asked this question, but it was also, according to Matthew, James and John's mom. Anybody got a mom like that, right? We're, we're, we're up in your business, and some of you know a mom like that in your life. In fact, you were singing the song and thinking the song, this is how I fight my battles. What you were really thinking was, this is how my mom fights my battles for me. And, and listen, the reality is we might probably have a mom like that, Now, interestingly enough, the request from James and John, and even his mother, Jesus doesn't rebuke it. He doesn't say, how dare you ask me that question? He doesn't say, no way. Why would you ask me or ask this request of me? Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness. In fact, what you see is Jesus responding to them. Why? Because the desire for greatness isn't sinful. In fact, what I would argue is the desire for greatness is actually a God given desire. That it's, according to the scriptures, I mean, what we see also in the scriptures is that ambition isn't a bad thing. We ought to be ambitious in our faith. In fact, I believe that God created a longing within each and every one of us to feel and experience and want something bigger than ourselves. And the desire for greatness isn't wrong. In fact, what we'll see and what Jesus will indicate that there is a place for greatness, the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God. So this ambition to, to attain greatness could be well, praiseworthy. It could be healthy. It's just not how the disciples want to go about doing it. In fact, take a look at the statement here. Jesus does not critique their desire for greatness. He critiques their way to greatness. And what was their way to greatness? Their way to greatness, their path to greatness was rooted in a selfish desire to be served. In fact, write this down as point number two. False greatness seeks to be served. False greatness seeks to be served. Now, there's a contrast, isn't there? On one hand, you see a God-given desire. On the other hand, what you see is a kind of desire, a kind of greatness that wants to be served and seeks to be served. And it's rooted fundamentally at the core of that desire, at the middle is self and everyone else are just pawns to my scheme and my story and they're just stepping stones to get what I want. See, see good ambition is, 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 is the desire to accomplish something great. We all want that, don't we not? But bad ambition is the desire to accomplish something in order to be great. 
It's this incessant need to be approved and liked and be uh, 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 the center of attention and that we got all these things. And isn't that the motivation of the disciples? Wasn't that not rooted in a selfish desire? Look at what the disciple says in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And listen, you might be surprised in how crass the disciples are by asking or making this request, but the reality is the temptation lurks in each and every one of us. This, this, this kind of motivation that the James and John had exists in all of us. We are tempted to use Jesus for our selfish desires. Like if I were to ask you a question, is Jesus a means to an end for you? Think about what I'm asking there. Is Jesus the desire of your life, or is he just someone you need to get you the things that you desire in life? And all too often, I can find myself and I can see in people that they start coming to church and, and do church activities, and, and really their desire is not to grow, is that to, to, to look to God and say, God, I'm being serious about you. You need to fix my circumstances. I need something. And the temptation that James and John has is a temptation for us is to use Jesus's greatness to serve our selfish needs. And, and that's where it turns into. So what was the request that they were asking? What was the desire that they were looking for? Well, we see this here in verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. See, in the ancient Near East world, where rulers and kings, they would have two positions, on the left and the right of them. On the right of them was the place of highest honor, and to the left of them was a place of the next in line of prestige and status. And that's what they wanted. In fact, write this down as letter A, that false greatness seeks to be served, and they do it through position. The James and John, what they wanted was a position. Now, context helps here as well because they already had it. In fact, Jesus already indicated they had the position that in the kingdom of God, they would be judges and they would be rulers and they would do great things for God. But for them, it was not enough. And the reality is when it comes to pride, it never really is enough for us, isn't it? See, they didn't just want the same position that everyone had, that the disciples had. They wanted the position that was of highest esteem so they're not like the other disciples. They wanted a selfish position because ultimately, pride is competitive, isn't it not? Like the reality is that we, we in life want to be proud of something, and that's actually a good thing. And so maybe for you, you're, you're, a student, you're a young adult and you just graduated and on social media, you just want to share this incredible moment that you graduated. Maybe you're a parent and you want to highlight at a moment that your kids or accomplishments that your kids have done. Or maybe for you, it was your birthday or someone else's birthday and you post it and you want to let people know of the accomplishment of how proud you are. And that's a good thing. We should celebrate in life's joys. But if we're not careful, there's another insidious side to this kind of proud of accomplishments to which the Bible would condemn. And in that illustration that you might find yourself posting because you're proud of a moment, but then all of a sudden lurks within your heart is this thought, how come no one's liking my post, right? Well, so you're telling me they would like this post, but they're not gonna like my post and the incessant need for validation in our lives. 
Because ultimately, if you're not careful, pride is competitive. James and John were competitive. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says this about pride. He gives some truth bombs in this statement here. He says this, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more, and that's the key word, more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. In fact, they are proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Listen to this. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. In other words, sizing people up. Once that element of competition is gone, guess what? Pride is gone. And here's what Lewis is saying. What he's saying is simply this. That yes, you can be proud about something. You can be proud of an accomplishment. But is that what you're really proud about? Because the moment that someone walks in the room and they're better looking than you or they have more accomplishments than you and they have a, a, a better position than you or a job than you, then does that pride, that proud of that accomplishment go away? And what that really will tell you is that what you were really after was is wanting to be better than other people. You weren't proud of this accomplishment. Maybe you were, but that wasn't the sustaining joy of your moment. You were just proud that you were better than someone, that you accomplished something. And this is what James and John did in this request of this position. I wanted to not just have position, but better than those people. And what that produces in the heart of someone is envy and jealousy. See, envy operates in this kind of theory of limited goods. It functions in this this, economy of scarcity. See, in the ancient Near East, they believed that, that there was only limited goods, limited blessings that can be given to people. So when the God or the gods bestowed the blessings on people or bestowed the goods on people, there was only limited supplies. And so the thinking was this, if someone was blessed with a great family, if someone was blessed with a great career, a blessed job financially or kids, that means if they got the blessings and then there is less for me to enjoy. Can I just tell you, that's an ancient Near East uh, thinking. It is the same thinking today, isn't it not? See, if we think that, that we look at someone and they're blessed and they're favored by God by these things, the good looks, the careers, the jobs, the Instagram family, and our thinking is, and what, what envy does is it forces us to look at the blessings of other people and curse them underneath our breath. And secretly, we hope for their demise. We hope for their failures. We hope for their pain. We hope for their struggles in hopes that that because of that, their blessing will diminish and it will go back in the atmosphere and there's more for us. See, envy believes that they are, people who are envious believe that they are owed more than what they have been given. Can I ask you a question? Do you struggle with this? Is it hard for you to rejoice in someone else's celebrations or joys? Do you find yourself constantly, when you go through social media, with an embittered and jealous heart rather than a celebrated heart? Do you find yourself incessantly trying to tear down the people whenever they talk about their moments of joy? 
Like, like, like for you, maybe a neighbor came to you and said, hey, you gotta check out our kitchen. We got the upgrade. We did all this stuff. And for you, that does bad things to your heart. And so you would say, well, how much did you just pay for it? Oh, well, you got ripped off. You, you got a bad deal. No good. Or maybe your neighbor says, hey, neighbor, you gotta come check out my driveway. I just got a new car. I got the new Chevy. And that does bad things for your soul because you don't have that. And so what you wanna say is, well, I'm more of a Ford guy, right? That, that, that doesn't do anything for me. As if Jesus did not settle the score on the cross. As if the God that we serve has infinite blessings bestowed upon us because he is the eternal God. Envy does bad things. And can I just add one more thought to that? See, our, you think our, we think that our problem is the people who have what we don't have. But the reality is they cannot solve your problems. The people that we're jealous of, they cannot. You know who our issue really is? It's not with them. Our issue is with God. Because who's the only one who could rewrite the inequity of our hearts? You see, the irony is that my neighbor cannot make me a, a, a better, cannot give me a better house. My, my, my brother, who's a better athlete than me, cannot make me a better athlete. My sister, who is smarter than me and accomplished more, cannot make me smarter. My neighbor cannot, even if he gave me his truck, he cannot solve my problems. In fact, it'd actually make me more jealous because he's more benevolent than I am, right? So it's it gets more crazy. The issue really is with God. And so that is why Jesus critiques the disciples' way of this position and an envious heart. He doesn't only critique the disciples' way to greatness. He critiques the world's way of greatness. In fact, write this down as B. False greatness seeks to be served through authority. Let's take a look at what Jesus says here in verse 42. He says this, and Jesus called them to him, called them to him and said to them, so he gathered the disciples. He said, listen up. We need to have a talk, boys. Straight up, here's what you need to know. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. To which the disciples were like, yes, that's the point. That's what we want. We want to lord over people. We want to make sure that we are controlling people. Most of our lives, people have been lording over us. Now that we have you, Jesus, now that we can see the miracles and the mighty works that you do, now it is our turn. We get to lord over people. To which Jesus drops an eight-word bomb. And he says this. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus builds this uh, the straw man of what the Gentiles and the rulers is. And Jesus says, not this way, guys. Not this way. That in the kingdom of God, this is not how we operate. This is not the path of true greatness. And so you know what? So, so, so Jesus says, he directs them to say, hey, can, can I show you what true greatness looks like? He goes on to say this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, which confused the disciples, right? Because how is this so? How is it that servants are great? No, no, servants aren't great. We know what servants are. Servants aren't great. They serve people who are great. And so for the disciples in their mind, this was a oxymoron. To be great is to be a servant. That's an, you know what an oxymoron is, right? It's two contradictory statements in conjunction with one another, and it contradicts itself, right? So maybe you go to the grocery store, and you check out the seafood aisle, and you see a contradictory a oxymoron, jumbo shrimp, 
Like, how is that possible? Or maybe for you, you travel or you go into airplanes and they serve you something called airplane food. That's an oxymoron. I don't know what that is, but it's not food, right? And and maybe for you, uh, prior to COVID, this was an oxymoron, social distancing. Now, we all know too well what that is. And in in fact, my favorite oxymoron statement, this is my personal favorite, is this. Adorable cats. I've never seen one. Doesn't exist. So it's an oxymoron. What, G, what the disciples were saying is that servants are not great. That is an oxymoron. That doesn't exist. You know what Jesus is doing? He is redefining the definition of greatness. So, he, so Jesus begins to say this. In fact, put this down as point three. True greatness is found in serving others. True greatness is found in serving. See, I am convinced if you ever want to get to the place where, where you get a reality check, to the place where maybe for you, you have been climbing and crawling and digging in the wrong direction, if we ever need to change our perspective, we need to have a Copernicus revolution of the soul. You remember Copernicus? He, he was this, um, maybe junior high science class, you heard about Copernicus. He was this um, mathematician, uh, astronomer in the Renaissance era. And prior to his discovery, the world believed that the earth was at the center of the universe. And the planets and the stars orbited around the earth. And then Copernicus looked at a telescope and he discovered the heliocentric system, which said this, not that the earth was at the center of the universe and everything orbited around them, but rather the sun is at the center and earth orbits around that. We are not the center, but rather we orbit around something that is the center. And if we ever want to get to the place of true greatness, we need to have a Copernicus revolution of our souls, where we discover that we are not at the center, as that according to the Bible, Paul would say this, think of other people's needs above yours. That if you want to experience true greatness, you have to serve other people not just yourself or use people to serve you. See, when I was in college, I had a friend of mine who, I, I don't know the right word to say it, so I'm just gonna say it. He was a slob, right? And he was just it's a messy guy. Raise your hand if you know a slob in your life. Yeah, no, don't point at them, just, just raise your hand. Um, but, but he was just kind of, I mean, he was a nice guy, but he was like a guy who his mom fought his battle, so he never actually washed his clothes in his life. And so there in his dorm room was a pile of heaping dirty clothes. There was just dirty clothes on top of dirty clothes to the point where I remember one day in class, he showed up with a suit and tie. And we were all wondering, do you have a presentation today? And he's like, no, this is the last article of clothing that I possess. And so we wanted to help him out. And so we took him to the community laundry room at our campus and we showed him that this is where uh, you put your dirty clothes in this laundry room right here. You put your clothes in there. You put detergent, fabric softener. Once the cycle has ended, you take those clothes and you put it in a, what's called a dryer. You put some dryer sheets there for extra freshness. And there you go. Well, the very next day we saw him. And can I tell you, he looked like a brand new person. And he felt great. He felt like, wow, this is a new experience for me. This is what he even said. I didn't even know I had these clothes. He even mentioned this, that that it's kind of weird, but my clothes kind of fit smaller than I usually. 
And we told them, depending on the fabric that can kind of do something to your clothes, well, the very next day, same thing. We saw him and we're like, wow, I didn't even know that you could look like that. And it's like, you know, I feel like a brand new person. And again, he said this, I didn't even know I had these clothes. And then it dawned on him. He had a Copernicus revolution, an enlightenment and what he came to the conclusion was this. The reason why he's, he feels like these are brand new clothes or that he'd never had these clothes before, and the reason why they kind of fit kind of small on him is because he accidentally took the wrong load from the dryer thinking that it was his clothes. So for over two days, he was wearing the wrong clothes. He was wearing someone else's clothes. And listen, every time I reminisce on that story, in fact, I, 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 we talk about it quite often. When we see or we, we, we engage with each other, it brings laughter. But as I reflect on it, I feel like some, some of us, that's our problem. That we are just wearing the wrong clothes. And not only are we wearing the wrong clothes, we are wearing someone else's clothes. See, we thought in our attempts for true greatness that the clothes that we wear is the clothes of the world of pride and selfish ambition and, and greed and jealousy and envy. And as, G, as followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying straight up is that you are wearing the wrong clothes. Because according to the Bible, Paul says this, you need to put off your old self and put on Christ. Put on humility. And some of us here today, we have been following Jesus for months and for years, and we have not shed off our old nature, the desire to be served ourselves. And we're just wearing the wrong clothes. We're wearing someone else's clothes. And so Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us a better way. In fact, can I show you what that better way looks like here at Christ Fellowship? I want to invite Lauren to join me. And she's going to bring some props here. And can we get up for Lauren and our production team, everyone? So here at Christ Fellowship, uh, our mission is to help you follow Jesus. It's simply this. We want you to be disciples of Jesus. That is our hope. That is our aim. That is our desire. And, and, and we have certain next steps that we believe that would help you in that. And one of them is to join a team. It's simply what we call volunteering or helping out. And you know what I love about our volunteers and those who serve in our ministries is that they get it. They have put on the right clothes. So on a given weekend or a given week, you can find our volunteers wear some of these clothes. Can I just highlight some of them? On a given week, you can find our CF Kids volunteers. We love our CF Kids, don't we not, at all of our campuses? And listen, you know who they serve? They serve you. If you have a, you're your parent, they're serving you so that you can enjoy this teaching, enjoy this environment. But not only are they serving you, they're serving your little ones. Showing them the way of Jesus in a fun and exciting and a creative way. And so we love our CF kids. And then we have this shirt. This is for our CF student volunteers. We love our CF students. Is there any students in the house here? Any volunteers? Yeah, we love them. And the reality is that you know, I was actually oh, there at a, our, my campus, and I saw so many of them wear these shirts. And I thought to myself, you know what? The truth is all of us would probably say during our adolescent years, we face some challenges. And it's true. But can I also just remind you, I'm actually reminded as someone who is going to have a preteen coming up, 
that there is a generation that is facing even greater challenges with anxiety, with the social pressures. And you know what I love about our CF students, our volunteers, is they're not only addressing and talking about the problem, they're being part of the solution to stepping into the intersection of these students' lives and speaking the truth of God over their lives. We love our CF students. Then we have our young adults. We got any young adults in the house at all of our campuses? We love our young adults. If you are 18 to 29, listen, this is a great place for you not only to explore faith, learn and grow in your relationship with the God, but also a place that you can find community and serve your community. Just like the video that we saw through Caring for Miami. So we love our young adults. And then you'll see a shirt like this. This is for our production team. They're behind the scenes serving us. They do such a great job. In fact, this is where my son serves. And then, of course, we have our guest services volunteers. We love our guest services in fact, they embody what true greatness is by serving each and every one of us. And then we have this really bright one, which is our parking team volunteers. It's bright. Yes, give it up for them. It's bright because we don't want you to run them over because they're out there in the parking lot. And listen, they are there before some of us are there. They're the first people that you will see, but they're setting up cones. They're creating environments so that you and your family can enjoy from not just in the worship center, but also from the parking lot. And then this is for our security team. This is, we love our security team creating our environment safe. And then we have small groups, hundreds of volunteers who create space in their homes, in their lives, in their schedules to create space for people to study and grow in God's word. And these are not all the volunteer t-shirts. In fact, we have other ministries like worship. In fact, they don't have a t-shirt. So I was just maybe trying to put like a denim jacket or some ripped jeans. I don't know what they wear, but that's, that's what I thought in my mind. But there's so many different ways that we can volunteer and serve here at Christ Fellowship. We have our prayer team. We have our set up and tear down at some of our campuses. We have our online. We have our Spanish ministries. So many different ways that we get to serve. But here's the point. They get it. They see what true greatness. Not only do they see that, but they also see the dangers of living a life for themselves. And so they carve some time in their schedules and their lives to put on this shirt. And here's what they know. I'll write this down as a, we serve one another. We serve one another. They get it. And not only do they serve one another here in the church, but they serve our community. If you know anything about our church, we love serving our community. And so we go out in our community. In fact, this Saturday, we have something called Serve Saturday, where we have an opportunity to serve our community, those who are the least of these, those who need encouragement in our community, to show them the love of Jesus. They get it. And listen, there's multiple ways, depending on the different seasons of your life, this might manifest a little bit different. Maybe for you, you're just in the season where you can do it so ever periodically, Maybe for you, the focus of your, your serving season is really just towards your family. And listen, husbands, wives, maybe for you, what you just need to realize is that you just need to serve your spouse. That for so long, what causes the fighting and the arguments is that all in the while, you felt like you weren't being served. What Jesus says is you're going the wrong direction. That if you want to grow, you got to serve them. And listen, I do want to take some time, 
And listen, I, I do not want to dis- diminish some of the challenges that you face. And listen, some of you are going through some hardships, and it makes it very difficult in your schedules, in your time, and in the season. But listen, can I just tell you, because I have been in that place. If you have been following Jesus for years, and you have not taken the step to serve, what Jesus would simply tell you is you're going the wrong way. You've not put on Christ. And listen, I, I, again, I don't, want to dis- I, don't, I don't know what your situation is. I, I don't know the hardships that you're facing. But if you've been following Jesus for years, listen, if you want to grow in your faith, you have to serve in your faith. And whatever the excuses, listen, I have my set of excuses. I really do. Whatever the excuses is, what Jesus is going to say next demolishes those excuses. It does not give room for justification. And so write this down as B, and we'll close. Jesus served us sacrificially. Here's what Jesus says. He wraps it all by saying this, for even. And we do not know the weight of that word even as it relates to God. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That the way that we find life, the way that we have hope, was that Jesus came and served us. He didn't come into our scenario and our situation and demanded to be served, which was rightfully his. But rather, he served us. John Ortberg, in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, he writes this a picture. He, he gives this example of what true greatness looks like. He talks about a guy that was the name of Father Damien. He was a priest who became famous for really serving a leper colony. And, and if you don't know what leprosy is, prior to antibiotics, leprosy is a disease that was contagious, but it would destroy you from the inside out. It would cause your skin to rot. It would destroy your nerve endings so you would feel the pain. And oftentimes people with leprosy would find themselves with missing limbs and they wouldn't even feel it or even notice it. And because it was contagious, they exported people into this island in Hawaii. So he moved to Kalawa in a village of the island. I'm just going to read an excerpt here. The island of Molokai in Hawaii, and he had, which has been deemed as a quarantine zone, as a leper colony. And for 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies that no one else would touch, preached to the hearts that no one that would otherwise have been left alone and isolated. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. And listen to this. He built 2,000 coffins by hand. So that the lepers, when they would die, they would die with dignity. Slowly, it was said that Kalawa was just a, not just a place where lepers go to die, but it was a place where lepers go to live. For he offered them hope. Father Damien was not careful, however, about keeping his distance. He, didn't, he did nothing to separate himself from the people. He dipped his fingers in the boy, the bowl, along with his patience. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands. And after bandaging open, their open sores, he got close. And for this, the people loved him. 
Then one day he stood up and began his sermon with these two words, we lepers. You see, for Father Damon became a leper. In his ministry to lepers, he himself became a leper. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just in their island. He was now in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they live. Now he would die as they would die. Folks, that is true greatness. And can I tell you in a much bigger way, this is how Jesus served us. You see, you got to understand the disease that infected us, the curse was sin. The thing that separated us from God, alienated us from God, it was sin. It was the greedy heart. It was the envy. It was the jealousy. It was the selfish ambition that turns ourselves into ourselves, always wanting to be served with greed. And the thing that separated us from God was sin. But rather than looking at this problem and, and Jesus saying, will you just stay in that island to die? Jesus puts on flesh and blood and steps into our island and steps into our brokenness, into our pain, into our hardships, into our disappointments, into our sin itself. And he lives with us, showing us a better way. But not only that, he removes the disease of sin by taking that very sin, that very disease onto himself and nailing it into the cross. To where Paul would say that God made him Jesus who knew no sin, who was without disease, become sin itself so that we might have life. That is how Jesus served us. Do you see why Jesus can speak with authority and say, not so with you. You are going the wrong way. Because Jesus first served us. And so I, I, I don't know where you are at today. Maybe for you, you've just discovered after all these years, you're going the wrong direction. Maybe for you, after all these years, you just realize I'm wearing the wrong clothes. I'm wearing someone else's clothes. And maybe for you today, you just need a Copernicus revolution of the soul. And what I love about Jesus is he shows us the better way. He shows us the path of true greatness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you because it is your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Like God, for some of us, God, we have been going the wrong way. We thought that this is way to the top. This was the right direction. But in fact, we're going the opposite way. And God, you're here in this moment to speak truth to us, to bring us back to the right way, the right path. And that for some of us, we've been wearing the wrong clothes clothes of jealousy, of envy, selfish ambition. God, help us to rid ourselves of those old garments and to put on Christ, to put on humility. 
And so, God, I just pray that you would do a good work within us, God. Maybe it means that you need to rearrange our schedules. Maybe you need to rearrange our priorities. Maybe you need to change our loves. But God, certainly change our hearts. That we may experience true greatness in the kingdom of God. Help us, oh Lord, to experience this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, with every head bowed and every eye closed at all of our campus, I recognize that you might be hearing a message like this and discover what Jesus has done for you and how he has served you, but you've never come to that place in your life where you turned your life to Christ, that you've received the free gift of salvation, that you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins and allowed him to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, making you new, giving you salvation. If that's you today, can I just remind you, your next step is not to serve. Your next step is to surrender to Jesus. And if that's what you want, if that is what you desire, you can simply pray a prayer that I'm going to pray. You don't have to say it word for word, but let this be the cry of your heart. You can pray a prayer like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner that because of the disease of sin, it has caused me to go the wrong way. But because of your loving grace and your love for me, you died on the cross offering forgiveness of my sins and new life in Jesus Christ. Help me to trust in you. Help me to believe in you. Help me to turn to you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.